chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can find a Bible in the seats in front of you, and you'll find in most of those Bibles that Acts chapter 2 is on page 771. Have you ever gone to the store in the morning and you were eager to buy something? Maybe it was an item you've been wanting and researching and saving for. Maybe also it was a busy day and so you'd come early right when the store opened so you could get that thing and get on with your day. And so you get to the store, let's say it's 10.20ish in the morning. And you walk up to the door, but then you see that dreaded sign, sorry, we're closed. Open at 11 (laughs) a.m. And you're like, 11 a.m., oh no, I've got to wait a whole 40 minutes. Has this ever happened to you, something like this? Yeah, and, and, and you can't get what you want. It's, it's not time yet. The, the lights are off. The doors are locked. You have to wait. And the waiting seems to take forever, right? Before we had cell phones, at least, to occupy ourselves with. <laughs> the anticipation builds and it builds and, until finally that employee comes and unlocks the door. Well, that's like what's going on in today's passage. Let's put ourselves for a minute in the shoes of of Jesus' first followers. Jesus' followers have been waiting ever since John the Baptist had come on the scene maybe four years earlier announcing, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Ever since that moment, Jesus' followers have been waiting. And then after Jesus had come, they continued to wait. As he taught them and did amazing miracles, as he was surprisingly then arrested, tried, and crucified. And then even more surprisingly, after three days, raised again to life. And then Jesus' followers continued to wait Over the next several weeks after Jesus' resurrection, as Jesus appeared to them at various times, teaching and instructing them one time, commanding them, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they waited some more. Until about 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, as Jesus is about to leave them and ascend and be exalted in heaven, Jesus repeats, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then they wait again a week to 10 days until now finally in today's story, The waiting ends at last. Finally, Jesus is open for business and giving out the gift of the Holy Spirit. In our passage this morning, Luke recounts how it happens. It was the day of the Jewish feast called Pentecost. It's also called First Fruits or Weeks. And it was called Pentecost because it was 50 days after Passover on the Jewish calendar. Jesus' followers, about 120 of them, we learned earlier in in the book of Acts, are gathered together in a house in Jerusalem 
on that morning of Pentecost, about 9 a.m. And then picture this. Imagine what it would have been like to be there. Suddenly, a sound like a violent rushing wind fills the house. And you see what seem like tongues of fire dividing and coming to rest over everyone's heads. And everyone is filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak in other languages, languages that they don't know, declaring the wonders of God. The noise begins to attract the neighbors, including Jews who had emigrated to Jerusalem, though they were born in in many other places and had lived there. At that time, many Jews from around the Roman Empire would would come to Jerusalem to retire at the end of their lives to live out their last days in that holy city. Many other Jews from other places would also be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And amazing, each of these internationals who were born and raised in many different places around the Roman Empire, they um, each hear Jesus' Galilean followers speaking in their own home languages from all these different places. And, and so they're confused, they're bewildered even, and by the time the dust has settled, 3,000 people have been added to this brand new Jesus movement. Finally, after all that waiting, Jesus is open for business and giving out the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I've got great news for you this morning. Jesus wants you to receive the gift of the Spirit too. That's what today's passage proclaims. Now let's back up a bit and and ask the obvious question, why do we want the Holy Spirit? What's the big deal? What's all the waiting and the anticipation about? And let me answer that question in three ways. First, by asking, what is the significance of the Spirit's coming? And then second, what does the Holy Spirit do for us? And then third, how do you receive the Holy Spirit? So first, what's the significance of the Holy Spirit's coming? Well, the Apostle Peter answers this question. A crowd is gathering. Everyone's perplexed and and amazed because they hear these, these uncultured Galileans eloquently declaring God's wonders in all of these different cosmopolitan languages. Imagine you go to a small church on vacation, perhaps a rural church somewhere. Maybe you have a relative there and you know most of them only have an eighth grade education. But to your surprise, imagine when you get there, if these simple people are praising God in perfect French and Filipino and Hindi and Farsi and Cantonese, and Swahili, and Hungarian, and Portuguese, etc. You'd be like, how is this happening? Well, Peter gets up and explains what's going on. And he begins by pointing everyone to the scriptures, to a passage in the prophetic book of Joel, where Joel describes what would happen in the last days. Peter begins, verse 16. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Do you realize that we are in the last days? Some of you are like, yes, I've been watching the news. (laughs) 
Well, that's the first thing that we learn here about the Spirit. The Spirit is the unmistakable sign that we are in the last days. And we've been in the last days for a while. (laughs) In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Renowned New Testament scholar Gordon Fee comments, The gift of the Spirit is the crowning evidence that God's end-time promises are being fulfilled. All the Jews at that time, they knew from the scriptures that the Spirit would be poured out in the last days. Let me put this in, in context and talk briefly about what God's people around the time of Jesus expected to happen in the last days as they read their scriptures, the Old Testament. Tony, we have one slide, I think, if you could stick that up. They viewed history as as broken up into two epochs. There was the present age, characterized by sin and death. And for the Jews, they had experienced exile and suffering because they'd broken their covenant with God. At the time of Jesus, they were still suffering under Roman occupation and oppression. And, And the Jews were still scattered all over the ancient Roman world, as Luke reminds us in in today's passage. All these different people who happened to be in Jerusalem, but were from so many other places. But the Jews had hope because of prophecies like this one in Joel. Because the prophets foretold one day God would come and bring an end to this present age and inaugurate a new age, a new creation, characterized by God gathering all of God's scattered Jewish exiles. And God would send them his Messiah, his Christ, a good king, a powerful king who would defeat Israel's enemies and would establish a new kingdom, God's kingdom in Jerusalem. God would also establish a new covenant with this king and with his people, repledging God's faithfulness to them. God would also pour out his spirit to remake, to renew God's people and their land and to give them new hearts so that they would love God and be faithful to him. And then most exciting of all, perhaps, God would even raise the dead so that those who had died in the past waiting in faith for this new age to come so that they wouldn't miss out but that they could join in the blessings of the new age. So this is all what the Jews were looking forward to when the last days came, when the present age gave way to the age to come. Let me give you just one more prophecy which talks about some of this. There's many other prophecies we could look at, but look at this one from Ezekiel 36. Listen with me. Starting in verse 24 of of Ezekiel 36, the Lord says, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And then listen to this. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people. And I will be your God. Do you see why Jesus' first followers are so eagerly awaiting the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's coming is a sign and an implementer of the last days that they're longing for. Just to quote one more Old Testament prophet, Isaiah this time in Isaiah 32, 15. And you can take the slide down, Tony. Isaiah 
talks about um, well, he, he's kind of picking up, we're getting the second half of his thought here, but he says, till the Spirit is poured out on us from on high, till the Spirit is poured out on us from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile field. God's Spirit is like rain on thirsty, parched ground, causing it to bud and to flower, bringing new life and flourishing. The Spirit is the one who in the last days refreshes what is parched, bringing to life what is dead and dormant, causing to flourish what is barren. And so Jesus' followers are eagerly awaiting the coming of the Spirit. Which leads straight into the second question. What does the Spirit do for us when he comes? What can we expect? Well, we've already seen that he brings power. As Jesus had said back in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. The word spirit itself, you might know in the original Greek and Hebrew languages the Bible was written in, it's a word which can also be translated wind or breath. And so it's no big surprise that when the Holy Spirit comes, that coming sounds like a violent rushing wind. Have you ever been in a hurricane? It sounds like a train rushing at you, right? It sounds like power. The Holy Spirit is powerful. Power for what though? Not power to destroy, not reckless chaotic power. No, in verse 8, Jesus says, power to be his witnesses. Power, among other things, to speak, to proclaim. Remember the word for spirit is the word for breath, and breath is very closely related to speaking. So, so I want you to try something here. Um, hold your breath for a second. Take a deep breath. Hold your breath. And then while you're holding your breath, without breathing, say to the person next to you, Jesus is alive. No, without breathing. You, you can't do it, right? You can't speak without breathing because speaking takes breath. In fact, speaking is just articulated breathing. Ah, some of you are like, I guess I was breathing. (laughs) Speaking is just articulate breathing. And so likewise, try speaking about Jesus. Try speaking words about God without God's breath. Without the Spirit, they're they're just words. They, They lack God's power. For our words, for our speech to have power so that God speaks through us, we need God's breath. We need God's spirit. Remember, we we saw a few weeks back when we looked at Acts 1 that Jesus ascended to heaven and and he sat down there at the right hand of God and that um, exaltation, that, that taking of a position of power involved three things down on earth. First, it involved, remember, Christ making a risky decision to choose a people. And then second, it involved Christ giving that people a laser-focused mission, a clear purpose to be witnesses. And then third, it involved Christ giving them power to carry out that purpose. And today, Christ finally gives them that power. It's power for witness. That's not all that the Spirit is. The Spirit is so much more, but that's what 
is being highlighted here in the book of Acts that the Spirit empowers us for witness. And that witness happens in in two ways. It happens through words and it happens through deeds, both show and tell. Notice we see both of these in the Joel prophecy. Peter quotes, first words, telling, speaking. Verses 17 and 18, God, or your, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Here, here we see the spirit enabling God's people to prophesy. That's what Joel foretold would happen when the Spirit was poured out in the last days. I don't know what you think when you hear the word prophesy. Maybe you think of an old, holy, bearded man in a robe getting up and saying, thus saith the Lord, and, and foretelling some great event in the future. Well, prophets do do that, but that's not mainly what prophecy is. As theologians put it, prophecy isn't mainly foretelling, It's rather forth-telling. Prophecy is mainly speaking forth words from God. Not by our own understanding or our own power, but by the Spirit's power, by God's breath. And here Joel says, in the last days, it's not just a few special holy people who will prophesy like it was in the Old Testament. No, now it's going to be the sons and the daughters, the young men, the old men, the female servants, the male servants. Everyone, it seems, can speak words from God. Why? Because we've received power. God's breath to give us God's words. And so it's no surprise that the first thing Jesus' first followers do when they receive the Spirit at Pentecost is that they speak, they proclaim the wonders of God, and they do it in languages they don't even know. Now that's power. We could have used a little more of that this morning when we were singing in Filipino. So, so it, it's power so much so that as they're speaking, the, the people around them hear about God in their own heart languages and their attention is, is attracted and they gather to hear more. When I was in college, I, I went on a mission trip to Romania one summer and, and our task was, was to tell people about Jesus in Romania. The communism had just fallen. People were, were open to the world and to know what the communists had been keeping from them. And several students from my college went, and and one of my friends was placed on another team, not the same one I was on. And so afterwards, when we came back together at the end of the summer, we were catching up and we were telling stories about how our summer in Romania had gone. And this friend of mine told one story about his team going into the, the beautiful mountains of Romania. And there were these quaint little peasant villages there. Uh, and, and just a few these villages included just a few homes with thatched roofs in, in many cases. And, and this team, they were handing out uh, literature about Jesus in the Romanian language. And they went into one small home and an elderly couple lived there. And this couple great, gratefully and openly received the literature and these people, my friend and his, his teammates. And, and they began to talk. Now, my friend said um, he and his teammates only knew a few words of Romanian, which was, was obvious. I only had learned a few words too in the, the week of training we had before we went. He and his teammates were in the same boat. And, and the couple that they're talking to, this elderly couple, doesn't know a word of English. 
And, and so they're using hand gestures and, and the few broken phrases that they know. And my friend said, I can't explain it. I don't know how it happened, but we told them all about Jesus. We explained the gospel to them in Romanian. And we don't know Romanian. And he wondered if this old rural couple would in their life have another chance besides that chance to hear about Jesus if they hadn't been able to get the message across. But, but they did. The Spirit evidently empowered them. That's what the Spirit can do. The Spirit did it on the day of Pentecost. Because it's God's power, it's God's breath to enable us to speak God's words. Not always in foreign languages. Often it's just God giving you the right word for the right moment when you need to know what to say. Well, that's the speaking part. That's tell. But how about show? What about deeds? We see this in verse 18. God says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. Wonders. And signs, signs and wonders. This is one of Luke's favorite phrases. Luke recounts in verse 22, in Peter's sermon, Peter tells how Jesus did miracle signs and wonders. And then again and again in the book of Acts, we're going to see Luke will tell how Jesus' followers will also do signs and wonders. Why? Because they've received power from the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus' followers do what Jesus had done. They do signs and wonders to show in action the good news that Jesus came to bring, that that Jesus has come to set the captives free, to heal those who are broken, to break the back of evil, even to give life to those who are dead. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, Jesus said, and you will be my witnesses. In word and deed, the Holy Spirit gives us power to witness. So much so that by the time Peter is done speaking in verse 37, his listeners are cut to the heart and 3,000 are added to their number that day. They go from 120 to over 3,000. That's power. That's God's own breath bringing life and power to our words and to our deeds. The Holy Spirit is God's own empowering presence among us. Well, that leads to the third question. How do we receive the Spirit? How do we receive this power? Well, this is a question that all the onlookers would want to know on the day of Pentecost because after all, many of them were God-fearing Jews, Luke tells us. After all, uh, they, they were God's people. But they did not receive the Spirit that Pentecost morning. Only Jesus' followers did. Only these 120. Why? Why not all the other God-fearing Jews? Didn't Joel say, right, in verse 17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Notice carefully, who's supposed to pour out God's Spirit? God is. And who is, supposed, who is God supposed to do it for? All people, which the Jews likely took to mean all of God's people, all the Jewish people. So what's happening on Pentecost isn't happening to all people. 
or even all of God's people. It's confined to just 120 or so of Jesus' followers. What gives? Why them and not us? The crowd would want to know. What do we have to do to receive the Spirit? And this is what Peter addresses in his sermon to them. He says, actually, the fact that only we followers of Jesus have received the Spirit proves that Jesus is alive again and that Jesus has ascended to God. You killed him, but God raised him. And now Jesus has gone back to God, sat down to reign at God's right hand, and God has given Jesus the Spirit, and Jesus is pouring him out. Think about Peter's logic this way. Let's, let's say that your relatives are on a long trip, and they, they come by along the way, and they stop to visit you. And, and you're visiting with them, and, and you're talking uh, about family, and in the conversation, it comes up about a family heirloom that, let's say, your grandma has. And she's promised to give it to you because it's precious to you. And um, you're, you're, you're looking forward to having it, but she hasn't gotten around to sending it. And, and they say, well, guess what? Later on our trip, we're visiting your grandma. And we'll get it from her and we'll ship it to you. And, and so then they leave and, and days go by. And then in the mail one day, you get a package. And it's the family heirloom. And you're, you're grateful. And, but what do you conclude? You, you conclude that your relatives must have gotten to grandma's house, right? They, they must have, have gotten there. And you know that they did because they sent the heirloom that grandma had for you. And that, in a way, is what happens with Jesus. We know that Jesus has ascended. We know that he's gone back to God and he's gotten there because he's gotten the Spirit from God and poured out the Spirit on his followers. That's Peter's argument. If the Spirit has been poured out on us, it's because the Jesus we follow is alive and exalted with God in heaven and is pouring out the Spirit. So Peter concludes... With good news, he says, this isn't an exclusive thing. He says to to all the, the people who are listening, you can have the Spirit too. You can receive power and fresh life and all that the Spirit brings. You just have to turn to Jesus and let Jesus pour the Spirit on you. That's why Peter ends his sermon like this. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is Lord, ascended to God's right hand. You rejected and crucified him, but God has raised him up and enthroned him, exalted him, and has given him the prerogative to baptize his followers with the Spirit. So if you want the Spirit, just turn to Jesus. Repent, turn around, stop rejecting Jesus, stop ignoring Jesus, stop keeping Jesus at arm's length. Living your own life apart from Jesus. No, turn around and instead acknowledge what Peter concludes in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. This is Peter's key biblical truth for his sermon. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
So give your allegiance to Jesus, the Lord, the one enthroned in heaven. How? Peter says, be baptized in Jesus' name. Publicly, officially, bow the knee. Align yourself with Jesus and he will forgive your sins and your offenses and your faults and your shortcomings and he will give you the Holy Spirit. Well, let's say you've done that. Let's say you are a follower of Jesus. You believe in him. You trust him. You've given him your allegiance. You've been baptized. How do you receive the Spirit? What do you have to do? Well, guess what? It's, it's not about what you do. It, it's not about what you do. You can't buy the Spirit from Jesus. You can't earn the Spirit. You can't do something to impress Jesus enough to qualify for the Spirit. No, the Spirit is a free gift. The Spirit's a gift. Again, chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus told his followers, wait for the gift my father promised. All they can do is wait. (laughs) Wait to receive the gift. And then again in verse 38, Peter repeats that it's a gift. He says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Do you want to receive the gift of the Spirit? You can't do anything to get him except just wait to receive him. And so as we close this morning, let's, let me apply this briefly to three kinds of people. Whoa, you lost me for a second there. <laughs> First, those who, who still keep Jesus at arm's length. If you haven't come to Jesus, if you haven't put your trust in him, given him your allegiance, repented and been baptized, if you want to enjoy this new life, this new power, entering into this new age that God is bringing, you have to come to Jesus to surrender your life to him, to place your trust in him and let him forgive your sins and baptize you with his spirit. Second, for those who have done that, but, but you were never told about the spirit part. You know about the Jesus part, but you don't know about the spirit part. As far as you know, you didn't receive the spirit. Well, here's what you can do. Just simply ask Jesus now to pour the spirit out on you. Now, here's the thing about the spirit. His, his coming is not always as dramatic as it was at Pentecost. Sometimes he comes like a blazing fire or rushing wind. Sometimes he comes like a gentle drizzle, like a fine fresh dew, which slowly but deeply soaks and refreshes. We don't get to control or decide how the spirit comes. Jesus is the one who pours him out. And Jesus gets to decide what's best for each one of us. Our part is simply to ask and to receive. And then third, those of you, um, or, or there are those of you who, who may have received the Spirit, but, but you feel like the life and the power has burned low, and uh, the refreshment has gone dry. Don't you miss him? Yes. yes. Life's too short to be running on empty. 
And so you can ask Jesus to, to fill you up with his spirit. It's a gift. So if you'd like to respond this morning in any of those ways, we would be happy to, to pray for you. And so what we're going to do during the closing song um, is our prayer team is going to be at the front. Normally we're in the lounge, but we're going to be at the front today. And um, we would be happy to, to pray for you. We'll, we'll pray if you want to turn to Christ for the first time. We'll pray with you about that. Or if you want to ask the God, Jesus, to give you his spirit for the first time. Or if you want to ask him to fill you up again. Any of those things, we would be happy to pray with you. And we're just going to take a time to, to wait and to invite Jesus to fill us with his spirit. And um, we'll be here at the front if you'd like us to pray with you as we do that, as we sing this closing song. We'll invite the prayer team to come up.